please welcome to the show inductee into the Scarborough Walk of Fame and two-time Canadian National Poetry Slam champion, Dwayne Morgan. Dwayne. Yes, sir. Good morning. Good morning. How you doing? I'm well. How are you? I'm excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, no problem at all. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, um, I wish we could spend all of the time talking about you, poetry, how you got started, um, and all that stuff. I do want to talk a little bit about that, but um, because of, of, of the the time that that we're living in um you know we'll talk about i guess more important things that yeah, that we need right. that we need to discuss absolutely um, and so thank you again uh for for joining me here i i guess i'm i'm guessing you've done a lot of stuff like this uh recently people asking you for your opinion your thoughts and I can only imagine because I've asked these same questions over the past few years um, to people like Morgan Campbell, uh, formerly of, 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 the, of the Toronto Star, um, mm-hmm. his wife Perdita, uh, and so Desmond Cole uh, as well. Um, also people uh, like Tanya Talaga, uh, who's a, uh, uh, indigenous uh, and a number of other indigenous guests that I've had on, um, but I, I, I guess the the question I want to ask first off is how are you doing? How 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 are you feeling these days? Uh, I mean, I'm good. I'm I'm tired and exhausted. I mean, it's a very exhausting time when these things are happening. Um, I play a specific role in the in the community as a <clears throat> a sounding board, as a voice. So. You know, people are always sending me stuff, asking me for, you know, opinions, different things. So, you know, it gets, I can't um, turn it off per se because I have a role to play. And I know in these times, part of my role is listening to people's concerns, seeing what's out there, trying to figure out how to package this into ways and perspectives that articulate what people might be feeling. but don't necessarily have the words to express. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's very, it does get tiring. It does get exhausting, but I mean, overall I'm, I'm good. I'm great. I'm in a good headspace. I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I, I've, al- I've often asked, you know, when, when there, when there's not protests and marches going on, um, I, I often ask people, you know, you, this is something that you deal with every day. And, and the something is, is discrimination, racism, um, the way that um, the police uh, deal with you, the way that uh, institutions deal with you. It must, is, it a, is it a different kind of tide or a different kind of exhaustion uh, from a day-to-day basis versus everyone is talking about the stuff now? Um, I mean, it's a different exhaustion. I mean, I think we're, we're used to the normal exhaustion that comes from, you know, being black, um, in this society that is exhausting in and of itself. 
uh, because in every environment you find yourself in, you have to navigate, um, you know, your skin in every environment. And that, you know, people who don't have to do that, who just show up at places and are completely unaware of their, their skin, yeah. don't even have to think about these things. But these are thoughts that, you know, for people of color, black people, we're always thinking about when I walk into this space, how do people see me? Do people think that I belong here? All of these kind of things. And we don't have the luxury of just walking into a space and belonging, feeling like we just belong there, unless it's a space where everybody else looks like us. Yeah. Then you know, we don't really think about it in that sense. So that's the regular day-to-day -day exhaustion. This is different because, uh, you know, it feels like the world is finally paying attention. The world mm. is waking up to something so now not only am I dealing with the regular day-to-day -day exhaustion, but also this exhaustion that's coming from, from other people, other people wanting to understand, other people wanting to question things, and then having those, those dialogues with people. And I think, you know, it's, um, we have a responsibility that, you know, when someone is open, and is seeking information and wants to have that dialogue to actually yeah. have that dialogue with them. That mm. is part of the solution, part of moving things in the right way. So you also don't have the luxury to avoid that exhaustion either, because that's also part of what it is that you do in terms of trying to move things forward. So you're just in a constant state of being exhausted. And I said to, to someone the other day that it, you know, there's the physical exhaustion, but right now it just feels like my soul and my spirit is also exhausted, um, which is, you know, taking it to a whole other level. Yeah. <coughs> <clears throat> I, so my, my sister uh, is in, in a mixed, mixed race uh, marriage or two kids uh, under four and I think two um, are, are black. And I remember speaking with her last week. And she said that her and her husband knew they were going to have the talk with the boys. They just didn't think it was going to be now. Mm. Um, and, and I know you've, you've referenced, I believe, your daughter in some of your poetry. Yes. Um, what, what is that conversation like to, to, have, to have with her? Um, well, I mean, we have deliberately grown her up i mean growing up in this system you learn a lot of things that maybe our parents didn't know because my parents are immigrants from jamaica so they had no clue of racism and all these kinds of things because they were coming from an environment where everybody looked like them and they yeah. came here they were introduced to it so they really have no frame of reference for what my sister and i endured what we went through going to school as you know two of the four black kids in the school at the time and and mm -hmm. you know how we were treated and, and that sort of thing so growing up in the in that kind of environment when it came to my daughter it was really important to grow her up extremely black from the very beginning what does and, that mean um, <clears throat> so everything around her looked like her hmm. we sought out black books uh when it was her birthday the the birthday invitation said please no white dolls we we made it very clear wow. we do not want anyone to give her any white dolls if you want to give her a doll go look for a black doll 
Yeah. And we made sure that her entire environment, things that were on the wall, everything looked like her. Yeah. Because we understood that uh, we live in a society that doesn't want, doesn't show positive images, you know, even to young people. Like you, you go to, to Walmart, Toys R Us, wherever, and you go in the doll aisle and there's no dolls that look like her. And even at, a, as, at four years old, even though you can't <clears throat> articulate it, you're still figuring out, well, how come I'm not here? But all these other people are here. So obviously, there's the, maybe they're more important than me. Maybe they're more preferred than me. Maybe they're more beautiful than me. Mm. This, this stuff happens with young kids of color from very early. So it was very important that everything around her life included blackness. And we had to raise her deliberately and specifically with that and have tough arguments with people who wanted to give the, the nice white Barbie doll and be like, uh, no, it's just not allowed. It's not going to happen. Uh, because we understood the potential damage that that does to, to kids in terms of how they see themselves and their development of pride in themselves. So um, we've been having that discussion with her <clears throat> since she was born. So it's not like we ever really had to have the talk because we've yeah. always been having the you, talk. You've raised her that way. What um, we, we've had, unfortunately, um, police killings, sorry, uh, police killing black people um unfortunately it's it's been happening for so long why why was um the killing of george floyd why do you think the killing of george floyd was like a the spark um <clears throat> you know i don't think it was like i don't even want to say it was the spark i mean because we had these uprisings with trayvon martin and all these kind of things yeah. all that stuff but I think it's also a matter of when it happened. And it happened at a specific moment in history hmm. when the world was shut down. Okay. <clears throat> People had nothing else to do. <clears throat> Our distractions are limited because most people around the world are stuck in quarantine and home or whatever. So now, whether you wanted to or not, this thing happened. Everyone saw it. And for a lot of people, protesting was the first time you got to leave your house huh. to go out on the street. So it happened in a moment where it had the entire world's attention. And I think because of that, it makes it a very pivotal occurrence because now maybe things can start to happen. It's not as easy to ignore. It doesn't get lost in the latest Hollywood scandal. Yeah. Because there is no Hollywood scandal. There is no Hollywood. This is the story. The global story that is happening right now is coronavirus and this. Yeah. And this, no one's even talking about the coronavirus that much anymore because this has moved to the forefront and nice. everybody's looking at how do we start to deal with this because this is not going away. And now the pressure is starting to go on to corporations, to businesses, to, you know, the, the city saying anti-black racism is a public health crisis. Yeah. All of these things are now starting to move to the forefront because there's nothing else. 
So now is the time where we're starting to see more people active about this thing because there aren't all the other distractions. So we really have to keep the pressure up now because now is probably the best chance that we've ever had to actually start making some movements to start dismantling some of these systems of oppression. Well, there's a lot there that I want to talk about. Uh, public health crisis, uh, defunding the police. Um, mm-hmm. let, let me take a step back. You talked about, you know, uh, I, I've been thinking about that as well. Everyone's sort of cooped up. It's like shaking a Coke can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just waiting for it to be opened and it just comes <clears throat> out naturally. Um, so it's very, very interesting that you used, you know, the, uh, COVID-19, this coronavirus that we're all sort of experiencing in different ways, um, being the thing that helped to, to galvanize people, just get out, mm-hmm. to get out there. And, and whether it's, it's March or whatever the case is, um, I was speaking with, um, I have another podcast uh, that focuses on music and my co-host and I were talking with, uh, Vin Rock from Naughty by Nature a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about um, how he's seeing in his community that COVID-19 has impacted the black community um, very differently than, uh, than other communities uh, in, in, in a negative sense. Um, what, what are your, th- and then I sort of seen it and understood a little bit of it uh, speaking with Tanya Talaga. Uh, and how indigenous communities have, have always been um, brushed aside as, as it pertains to, to health here in Canada. Um, and I'm learning more about we might all be impacted by COVID-19, but we're not all in the same boat. Mm-hmm. Certain people are in different boats. We're all in the same storm, maybe. Right. Um, I'm wondering if you have any, any thoughts that, that, or experience that you could talk about in terms of how uh, in Canada, that you're, if, if you're seeing how the black community has been impacted uh, differently than what we're all sort of um, talking about and being impacted? Well, it's, uh, some of that is hard for me to say in the Canadian context because, you know, we, we do this thing where we don't want to keep race-based statistics, um, which is also um, a, a racist thing because uh-huh. it's based on the assumption that we're all the same. And we're not. Um, Different diseases affect different races of people differently. So it might be, not might be, it is advantageous to keep statistics based on race because then you can actually see where you should be putting certain resources when it comes to certain ailments, diseases, viruses, etc. As opposed to, oh, you know, the one size fits all Canadian model, uh, which obviously doesn't work. Um, there's been, you know, a number of, um, healthcare workers who have been affected. We know that there are a lot of people of color in the, in healthcare, um, and in the front lines of healthcare, a lot of blacks, a lot of Filipinos, and a lot of those people have been, um, affected by, by the virus. And, you know, another piece to this, when we look at, um, you know, geography, when we look at poverty and all these things, and we look at something that affects, you know, people's health and immune systems and all these things, you also have to look at um, people's access to healthy food, people's mm. ability to feed themselves things that will boost their immune systems. Uh, oftentimes, you know, you like a lot of people in, 
uh, poor neighborhoods, they don't shop at Whole Foods. They don't, they, you know, they're, they're, like a, a, a salad is more expensive than a Big Mac combo. So what are their kids going to get? A bag of chips, a Pepsi, and a Big Mac, right? That's, that's what you're going to get. And these things put you more at risk when these things happen because your immune system isn't built up the way other people's immune systems are because you don't have access mm. to the same quality of foods that other people have. So I think, you know, it gets very um, intricate and complicated when we start trying to break it down by, by race and then looking at economics and poverty and how all of these things play into um, the situation that we find ourselves in. Can you um, help me understand? Cause when I heard, when I, so I've heard this, this debate about uh, in, in Canada, uh, keeping race-based stats. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's, it's my ignorance talking here, but what's the, can you explain to me? Cause I know, Carding has, has also been very, um, you know, people have been talking about carding and, and how that's not a good thing. Is, is carding very different? Because I always thought that carding was collecting those race-based stats at, at the street level when cops are stopping black people. Or is that very, very different? Can you help me understand that? Um, those are two completely very different okay. uh, things. Yeah. Um, carding is... Um, I don't know. This guy might look suspicious. Let me take his information and put it in a police database and nobody knows what happens with that information. It's done at a cop's discretion. They could just say, I don't know, you look kind of suspicious. And that goes against people's civil rights, especially because it doesn't happen right across the board. It happens primarily with black men and indigenous uh, people. So if this was something that you know, you're walking down the street in Ajax or Pickering or Oshawa and some cop is just stopping you and saying, hey, I want your information to put it in a computer. People are going to be like, oh, no, hell no. What are you talking about? But we seem to be like, oh, that's okay when it's like this black kid because maybe he's more prone to, you know, being a criminal. That okay. is problematic. When we're looking at race-based statistics, it's a matter of saying, okay, we have 240 coronavirus cases. Um, 50 were Asian, 30 were white, 50 were black. And then over a course of time, if you start seeing the number in in the black community rising, then as public health, you can say, Mm. we need to address what is happening in the black community. Because if you say we're going to address everybody, but it's only affecting the black community disproportionately, resources are going to places where they don't need to go. So- That is the benefit of having race-based statistics in a situation like that, where you're testing everybody, but you're making sure that you're tracking how this particular virus affects different races so that you can make a plan based on those statistics and and put resources where they actually need to go. Thank you for for helping me understand that. Perfect. Uh, And it's interesting you end there. uh, was it was it Toronto that just uh, or Ontario that that talked about anti-black racism is now a public health crisis? I believe, yeah, I believe it's Toronto. I'm not sure if it's Ontario, but I know yeah. I, I'm pretty sure it's Toronto. What is what does this mean? Because I, you know, is is it is it similar to Trudeau symbolically taking a knee, but there's there's no meat there? 
what are your thoughts on, on, on this? Well, I mean, you know, the Trudeau taking a knee is a whole different conversation. I think this, <laughs> um, when, when public health uh, describes something as uh, a crisis, I believe once it gets to crisis status, that allows them to dedicate resources to it. So I think it, it's symbolic in naming it because then it means mm. now we can put resources towards doing this. Um, you know, we have to look at the fact that the years ago, uh, the World Health Organization um, said that when you look at factors for how people experience and enjoy life, their experience with racism is one of those factors. And racism is a factor in people's overall uh, um, health and well-being. So when you look at, you have a, a society where there are people in your society constantly dealing with anti-Black racism, how healthy is your society? How healthy are those people in your society? And when those people in your society aren't healthy, what else happens? Yeah. Well, then maybe there's more crime then maybe there's more mental health issues. Then maybe there's all of these other things that you have to deal with. So why not deal with the root of the issue and then save yourself from having to deal with all of the other things that come from not dealing with the root of the issue? Oh, yeah, go right to the root. Absolutely. Um, I, I have, I, I wanted to ask you this at the end, but I feel I want to ask it now. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have, does all of this, does it bring you a sense of hope or are you still, or is, or is there caution or are you cautious about it? Um, I'm sometimes negative in terms of, you know, people are people in, in a year's time. Are we just going to go back to what's comfortable? Mm -hmm. what, are you, what are you feeling about where we're at and where we're going? Um, I think right now, this is the most cautiously optimistic I've ever been mm. um, with dealing with these things. I'm, you know, I'm seeing so many people, like I, I was having a conversation recently with, uh, with a white friend of mine, yeah. who, and she's just like, you know what, I have so many black friends, and I'm for the first time realizing how I've completely missed the boat, like how, like, how I've totally not seen privilege and the privilege I have when I've been hanging out with my friends and stuff. And I've seen so many people recognizing things that they've never recognized before, that it actually does give me hope that maybe we're starting to shift the tide mm. uh, in a way that will lead to some kind of, um, you know, chipping away at the fabric of these systems that have been oppressing people for, for years and, and for generations. So um, this is probably the most optimistic I've ever been, but it's definitely a very cautious optimistic very cautious. Um, because, um, you know, we've seen all this stuff before and we know, mm. you know, companies have to put out a statement and they have to do this. Why? Because the black community spends a lot of money and um, <laughs> they need to protect that. Right. And they need to be like, hey, we're with you or whatever. Um, but the question is, well, how long are you with us and how invested are you with us? And, you know, these sorts of things. Or is it you need to post something that, you know, that we'll retweet and we'll repost for you and do your marketing campaign for you. 
um, so that you can make sure that your bottom line remains the bottom line. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's complicated, but you know, I don't want to get bogged down in all of the stuff from the past. I'm just looking at this moment and in this particular moment, I am cautiously optimistic about what is happening. Have you, have you been told or heard this comment, uh, in, in one way, shape or form that, but I'm, I'm uncomfortable. This, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Um, have, have you, what are your thoughts? Cause I've, I've heard this from people saying either they, they don't see or understand, um, or they look at things in isolation or they, you know, this, this whole talk about I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about this, seeing this, what, what, what are your, what is your response to that? Um, <clears throat> sorry. I think um, the, I've had the, the conversation with people who have yeah. said that they are uncomfortable and I've always said, well, welcome to my life. Mm. Uh, that's, I, you know, I don't have the luxury of being comfortable and uncomfortable. This is, I deal with this every single day. This is my reality. So um, be uncomfortable yeah. and figure Dwayne, sorry, man. My internet crashed on me. <clears throat> no problem at all. You were, um, I don't know exactly what you're saying, but we were talking about feel, the feeling of, of being uncomfortable. Right. And, um, you know, what I was saying is I, I've, I've had uh, those discussions with people. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people saying, you know, I'm not, uh, like, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm uncomfortable, you know. And I've always said, well, you know, that, that, lack of comfort is what I live and experience on a daily basis. So um, I don't want you to, you have to figure out, well, what can you do with it? You know, what, what are, does that mean that you have stuff to, you know, everybody wants things to go back to normal. Yeah. Normal. Right. So what do you mean go back to normal? If, if your normal is ignoring the realities of other people around you, like, I'm not interested in your normal. So mm. be uncomfortable and figure out how to work towards a newfound comfort, a comfort that makes other people also comfortable. Cause I wake up uncomfortable. I walk down the street uncomfortable. So, you know, I don't have the luxury to pick and choose when I'm comfortable and not comfortable. I have to live in this discomfort uh, that for you is temporary. I, I want to talk about, you just said something there about when you walk down the street. Um, I called my brother-in-law um, last week and, and just, we just had just a good heart-to-heart talk. Um, but what blew me away was that, so he's an introvert, but what blew me away was understanding that the way he dresses in public and the way he communicates and, and, carries himself in public is is like is, is part of survival it's it's not he's not a gregarious saying hello to everybody sort of natural um he says hello and smiles to strangers as part of his survival strategy um and that just blew me away that that's why he behaves uh, the way he does um, and then you just mentioned, you know, when you walk on the streets, um, it's, it's uncomfortable. Can you, for, for my listeners, 
can you help them understand why, how and why you feel this way on, on, a, uh, on a daily basis, what that actually means and ma- how it manifests itself? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, like your, your brother-in-law, even though it doesn't seem that way, I'm also a, an introvert, so I totally um, get that. And, you know, part of, you know, walking down the street, I've had experiences where, you know, people are walking towards me and they cross the street to walk on the other side of the street to not have to walk past me. Um, And I've had that experience ever since I was, I don't know, 12, 13, where where people, you know, do that. Um, Or, you know, if I'm walking behind them and I'm, um, I'm walking faster, so I'm getting closer to them you know, they pretend that this house is theirs and then suddenly they're walking behind me or just, just some weird things that happen that don't really make a whole lot of sense. So, I mean, a lot of times, you know, I'll, I'll smile and I'll, you know, say, yeah. you know, give head nod and different things to people because it's almost like you want to assure them that they're okay, that, you know, they don't have to be worried about me, that I'm, I'm one of the safe ones in a sense. Uh, because you're constantly dealing with the judgments or, or potential judgments that people are making in their heads. And this is part of, you know, all this other stuff that we we're talking about around uh, mental health, around, you know, other people not having to deal with these things and not having to think about these things. You can just go for a walk and I'm just going for a walk. Like, it doesn't matter who you pass on the walk, but when you're a black person, especially a black male, uh, going for a walk, you you face so many different microaggressions um, that you just want to stay inside. What the hell am I going for a walk for? This this is this doesn't even make sense. So you know, and these are these are things that that we we're thinking about and that we face on a daily basis. Um, I remember seeing recently. I saw a, probably an Instagram post of of um, a protester, black protester, had the mask on and had a sign something to the effect of don't shoot me or something like Black Lives Matter. And it said, I'm a, I'm a PhD. It said, no, it said, I'm a thug, I think. And like thug was crossed out and it said PhD. Mm-hmm. And then and, and there was a comment. I can't remember if it was a person that posted it, but there was a comment that said, why do we as black people um, have to even say that I'm a doctor, I'm a, I've got a PhD, I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I'm a CEO, so on and so forth. Um, and then I, I heard an interview that Keegan-Michael Kay gave with uh, Stephen Colbert recently where he talked about you've got famous or accomplished black people and then on the other side you've got the regular people, right? Like yourself, my brother-in-law and so on. So it's it's the story you know, right? So you know um, a, a famous you, you know Michael Jordan, right? But mm-hmm. you don't know if you're walking down the street who who Dwayne Morgan is, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a story you know versus a story that you don't know. And most people and what what uh, uh, Keegan Michael was saying was that most people default to the story that they don't know, and it's the scary black man mm-hmm. story um and it's I mean, sorry go ahead 
No, I think there's, um, you know, two things there with what you're saying, right? And if you look at the case of Jay-Z, Jay-Z is now uh, a billionaire. And on his last album, he had a song where he speaks about being a billionaire, but even amongst billionaires, he's not accepted. He's the black guy amongst us. He's the N-word amongst us, right? Mm -hmm. He's not accepted as just being a billionaire. Hey, guys, we're all billionaires. No, there's still a category that he has to fit in, that he gets put in. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an ex- another example. Um, you know, last year, my daughter's in grade seven. So last year she was in grade six and she's on the school bus and two kids are kind of going at it. Uh, a young black boy that I know, a young white kid, and they're always on the bus. They're always going at it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The, the bus driver is a Muslim woman and she ends up getting to the stop and she only chooses to yell at the black boy of the two. And she says, Omarion, stop being such a thug. Mm. Now the kid's in grade seven. What tells you that this young kid at, in grade seven is a thug? What makes that come out of your mouth when you look at this black kid and at the same time, say nothing to the white kid. Yeah. So this idea of black male thug is a part of how we operate in our society. So much so that another person of color will look at this black kid, it's call true. him a thug, and subconsciously plant that seed in his head. Because nobody looks at that black kid and says, Omarion, stop being a potential PhD. Because maybe that would inspire him to actually try to be a PhD. Mm. So we have these things in our head that is a part of our society. It is woven into the fabric of how we live. And this is when we talk about, you know, things that are systemic. If I were to ask that bus driver, where did that thought come from? She probably couldn't even tell me. Because it is so ingrained into how we socialize and how we operate that it's just there and nobody knows where it came from. And that's part of the problem of why we have to dismantle the systems, but also why it's so hard to do because a lot of times we don't even know where these thoughts came from that we have. And it's why I've, I've always, uh, not always, I, I'm, I'm thinking, but, but for a long time, always believed that representation matters, mm-hmm. you know, especially, you know, not especially, but, you know, if we take a look at, for example, the entertainment industry, um, I, I, th- I think it's important that we have uh, a black superhero. Um, my, my, my two nephews now, um, you know, they don't draw Spider-Man as Superman. They draw Black Panther as a superhero. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, I, and, and you're right, I, I think, and I believe it, it, it is important to have representation. So as a bus driver, whether the bus driver is white or, or Asian or brown, or, 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 or brown skin like me, that there's not a default to saying to the black kid on the bus, stop behaving like a thug. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, it, it sort of fits a, uh, a, a narrative that, that's woven into society, right? We sort of see the... Um, you know, people have talked about the uh, the white hero. Um, you know, when we talk about um, things that are evil, 
they're dark, they're black. When we mm-hmm. talk about things that are good, they're white. They're, you know, they're, they're bright. And, you know, and we've got to, and I think we, it, it's going to take a while, but I think we need to understand why we're, we're, we, we use words that we use mm-hmm. and, the, and the actual power that you talked about, that, that it, they actually have on people on a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Right? So well, now. Yeah. I think the, you know, another part of, of this too is that, um, and again, dealing with representation, dealing with who gets to tell the stories, is that a lot of times we care so much about how white people feel that we don't want to tell the real story mm-hmm. because that might make them feel more uncomfortable. So we could tell the story, but we have to tell it in a way that makes them the hero of the story because then they might be able to digest it. So, you know, we don't really look into or really delve into a lot of what really has happened in history. You know, how often do we talk about, I mean, there's a a lynching bill in the United States, which is amazing because it's like, how, yeah, there's, there's, there's a big thing that was in the news, like last week, there's a, a white politician who's holding up this bill which is to abolish lynching. There's somewhere in the States where lynching is still something that can be done. It's not illegal. Yeah. And this guy is holding this thing up. And it's like, it is amazing to me that in America, not even that long ago, people would go to church and then have a family picnic in a park and watch them hang black people. This mm. was a family outing. Now, if that isn't a completely twisted thing, I, I don't know what to say is twisted. You bring your kids and your apple pie and stuff to go and watch someone die. So no one's talking about things like that, things that have actually happened. When people talk about you know slavery and then moving into segregation and all of these things, nobody talks about the actual horrors that have been committed against black people because if people really looked at those images and really saw what happened i think more people would be so upset but we 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 so don't want to make white people feel uncomfortable about their past that it's really difficult to have them be accountable for their present because they don't even know how they got here Hmm. Don't even know how things moved to here. They don't even understand when we're talking about this has been going on for generations. This has been going on for 400 years. A lot of them are clueless to this because they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, well, these are the things we're talking about that you don't learn in school. Nobody talks about. It's all hidden because nobody wants you to feel guilty or any of these things. And these are the things that what allows all of these things to keep happening because we're not actually speaking about the things that are actually happening. In our school system, we're still not even fully learning about indigenous history. We learn about who who founded Canada and all this kind of stuff, but they're not really teaching about the residential schools. They're not really teaching about how we wiped out and annihilated and had systematic genocide of a whole group of people. We're not actually teaching what actually happened because we want to protect the people whose ancestors did these things. 
And until we can get over ourselves and really start having some honest, ugly conversations about things that have happened, we're just going to keep repeating this stuff over and over again. Yeah. And that's going to be part of the problem. You're so right. There's, um, I can only remember uh, when it comes to black history in Canada, learning about the underground railway. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and most Canadians who, who've, who've gone to school here will, you know, don't understand, the, the, you know, so, what, so when they hear, for example, you know, when they hear a Doug Ford saying there is no racism um, in, in Canada, they, there's a default saying, yeah, because, you know, we, we had the Underground Railway. We saved, Canadians saved black people. We were a, a haven for them. Um, and that's, that's all that we learn about mm-hmm. uh, about black history here in, in, in Canada. And, and we don't learn about, um, and forgive me, I, I can't remember the name, but I think out in uh, it's Nova Scotia, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, that there were uh, settlements that... that yeah, they, Africville. Yeah, Af- yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, don't, we don't learn about that in, in school, in, in our history classes. Um, and, and it brings me to that thing where people, you know, whether it's, so or, or my brother-in-law, Irvin, I'm just going to, sorry, I'm referencing him all the time here. <laughs> but he said something to me as well. He says, so, cause he's American and he says he prefers the racism in the States mm-hmm. as he knows who he can trust and who he can't trust, who he can, you know, who, who his friends can be and not be. But in Canada, he's like, it's hidden. I have no clue who I can trust. Yeah. Everybody is polite mm-hmm. about everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, that's totally true. So, I mean, you're, you're constantly on your guard. You don't really know if you could trust what this person is saying or not. Um, and I mean, yeah, I, I mean, in the States, it's a whole different life. Hey, if I don't like you, I don't like you. I'm going to put this Confederate flag on my, on my car. So, you know, I don't like you don't even talk to me. It's like a yeah. whole different, you know, uh, scenario. But I think also one of the other things going back to what I was saying before as well is that it's always important also to look at <clears throat> who is telling the story, who is mm. shaping the narrative and why it is so important that we're having this conversation that so many, you know, black people are speaking out about, you know, certain things because I've, I've been having this conversation with a lot of people as of late. And I, you know, I've been saying to people that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. is one of the greatest lies sold around the world. So to white people, black people. Hmm. And, and what I mean by that is most people today don't even know that Martin Luther King Jr. was on America's terrorist list. Hmm. Now, how do you go from being a terrorist to a national hero? In what world does that happen? What other examples do we have, right? Nelson Mandela was considered a terrorist in Canada and in, in the States. Uh, he was on the terrorist list, but now he's an honorary Canadian. So maybe that's one example. Yeah. But Martin Luther King Jr. was on the Ku Klux Klan. is still not a terrorist organization in the United States. Martin Luther King Jr. was a terrorist, on a domestic terrorist, on officially in America, but is now a national hero. 
How does that happen? Well, change was going to come in America no matter what. There was way too much pressure. Now you had Martin Luther King Jr. and you had Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, hey, Black people, pick up guns, know your rights, get into the streets. If somebody shoots at you, you shoot them back. Martin Luther King Jr., hey, folks, if you hit me, turn the other cheek, hit the other one. America had to choose a road. Mm. They chose the safe road. They chose the road that says, if we are nonviolent and we get hit, we're just going to turn around and get hit again, instead of choosing the road that says, black people, it is your Second Amendment right to bear arms, to know your rights, and protect yourselves. That was too dangerous of an option. So they chose the safe option and made this person a national hero. Now, this doesn't discredit any of the stuff that he has done, what he has sure. achieved or whatever, but it's giving the backstory. So when we look at what is happening now, people are like, well, what is all this rioting and stuff going to achieve? Well, history has showed us that in order to achieve things, we need people doing it the peaceful way, and we need people doing it the not peaceful way to give people a choice. Hey, we have to make a change. Which one are we going to choose? And most people are never going to choose armed black people because they already fear black people unarmed. Mm -hmm. The worst thing you could have is a bunch of armed black people. Now what are we going to do? Yeah. So it is necessary to attack these things from multiple streams of strategies in order to put pressure on the people in power to make change. And that is the, the greatest lie ever conceived uh, around Martin Luther King Jr. And because nobody speaks about him being on the terrorist list. They yeah. speak about him being this great civil rights leader and leave that part out, right? Because how's America going to justify that this guy was on the terrorist list? So they just yeah. delete it. Don't talk about it. And I think that's why it's so important that we dig deeper into a lot of the, the roots of a lot of things that we see happening. Yeah, we've, we've obviously been having conversations around what is the right way to protest. And we, I mean, we all remember the, the anger that uh, white America had towards Colin Kaepernick um, mm -hmm. as, as, he, as he took a knee after... Uh, having thoughtful conversation with a uh, a former veteran that that mm -hmm. was a respectful way to protest, uh, mm -hmm. but you had everyone up in arms uh, all the way up to the the president mm -hmm. uh, saying that anybody who takes a knee should be fired and uh, NFL uh, was loud in their silence mm -hmm. but but now you have Roger Goodell uh, apologizing. Um, for, for their, uh, I think he apologized for their stance. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong there. But I know he never mentioned Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very interesting. It's, you know, who gets to tell the story, you know, mm -hmm. is, is, is a very interesting uh, thing to understand. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think that's why a lot of people have um, complete, it, it almost would have been better if, uh, Roger Goodell didn't make a statement than to make that statement that he did because everybody knows that that statement 
lacks all credibility without mentioning Colin Kaepernick's name because yeah. he, he is the, you know, don't say, oh, I stand with the players. This guy lost his entire career. No. Talk about him specifically because he was the catalyst for all of this. Nobody's, you know, printing shirts with any of the other, you know, players who kneel. Or, this was the guy. And part of the problem, again, is if we protest peacefully, people have a problem. If we protest violently, people have a problem. Why? Because most people like the status quo. Most people like what they have and don't care if you're trying to bring awareness to something that doesn't affect me. And when we talk about shaping the narrative, you know, down to the president, took this about America, patriotism, when he was speaking about the plight of black and brown people and police brutality. And they changed it into something about something that it was never about. Mm -hmm. So we also have to look at the power and privilege in changing the narrative and changing the conversation because they made that entire protest about something that it was not about. And now when Roger Goodell has no choice but to see a police officer kneeling on somebody's neck for eight minutes, he's like, oh, well, maybe this stuff does happen. Really? Like, we didn't see this before? Like, come yeah. on, let's be realistic. Yeah, we just have a, we just, uh, everyone's now a camera person, right? We all have, we all have cameras on, on, our, on our phones that we can video what's been happening for, for generations. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for many, many generations. Um, I want to get your thoughts on Mark Saunders. He's, uh, he announced yesterday, mm -hmm. um, that he will be resigning as chief of police. Um, he only had a, uh, a few months left anyways, I believe. Um, your, your thoughts on, on, on the work that he has done, um, or the work that he hasn't done. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I mean, to be honest, I don't have too many thoughts. I mean, first of all, you know, I'll commend him as being the, you know, the first black police chief. Um, and he got through it without any real major, you know, controversies and, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, that opens the door for, you know, other potential, you know, black candidates in the future. Because, you know, for black people, for people of color, when somebody gets into a position of power, there's an added pressure on them. Because everyone in the community is like, oh, please don't screw this up. Because if you screw it up, it's going to be a major thing. And nobody who looks like us is ever going to have that opportunity again. That's mm -hmm. kind of just how, you know, we think about certain things. But, you know, for me, I also understand that he works within a system. And it's the same system that makes, that brings about a lot of critiques of Barack Obama. Because people are like, well, now we have a black president, so everything's going to change. But the president works in a system where even if he wants things to change, he needs all these other pieces to fall in line to say, okay, this change is going to happen. And if they don't fall in line, yeah, you can want the change all you want, but unless you're going to be a dictator and say, this is what it's going to be, it just doesn't happen. So I don't know, you know, where he stands in terms of, you know, race and stuff. I know he said yesterday, you know, he wants to help out in the community with a lot of the violence happening in the black community and different things like that or whatever. Um, but I understand that he works and operates in a system yeah. where even if there were things that he personally wanted to do and see achieved, there are checks and balances that make it possible or not possible to do those things. So, you know, I don't put the, the 
the same kind of weight that some people put on it, like, oh, he's a black chief, so he should have done all of these things for black people because, you know, he's surrounded by people who aren't black, who don't have the same ideology, who vote on, you know, should this be done? Should that be done? Where should we allocate money? So, you know, to me, it's just, hey, it's, it's just a job. It's a high profile job. Um, and I understand the, the, um, the position that, that you're in as a person of color doing a job like that, where, you know, in your heart, you might want to achieve certain things, but don't necessarily have the power to achieve them. So, I mean, that's probably the extent of, of where my thoughts on, on him go. Everyone's been talking. Dwayne, I'm not going to take up too much time. So just a couple of last questions for you. Yeah, hey, no problem. Um, uh, I listen to podcasts a lot. At least two of my episodes today that, I've, that I'm going to listen to and all over the news the past couple of days, they've been asking people about uh, or talking about the defunding police. Uh, it's happened. This conversation is happening in cities all across North America. Um, what, are, what are your, your thoughts around, around that issue? Um, I mean, it's interesting because this is the first time I'm really um, thinking about this as a concept because so many people are <clears throat> are bringing it up. And I think it's um, it's interesting, like when you look at the the budget for Toronto and how much of that goes to policing, mm-hmm. how much of that goes to salaries. I mean, it's quite alarming when you look at the numbers, um, especially when you look at well, how much education does somebody need to become a police officer? There's people who are going to, to university for years to, to attain you know, degrees, to get certain jobs and aren't making this kind of, of money. Um, so maybe we have to start looking first at, well, with all this stuff happening, maybe police officers need better education. Maybe they need a degree in psychology or sociology or social work or something that gives you some insight on how people operate instead of that mindset of criminalizing or criminal versus non-criminal. Um, I think, you know, in this discussion, people also have to look at um, the origins of the police. Like I'm always big at looking at the beginning of stuff, right? Mm. And the police were created to protect the possessions of those who have from those who don't have. Now in 2020, the police still protect the possessions of those who have from those who don't have. Mm -hmm. That's ultimately their job. Sure, they might solve a murder here or there, but really it's a matter of the property of those who have and protecting it against those who don't have. If you can actually shift your society to make more people have, you actually take away a lot of the things that the police do. So, there is a strong argument for taking money from the police, maybe leaving them to deal with murders and stuff like that, and putting other things, uh, other resources into community development where you actually um, empower people and, 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 by, and through empowering them, bring them to a point where a lot of the other um, things that police do and investigate aren't necessary because you can create community programs that, that do many of these same things. So I think it's a very interesting thing to, to look at. Um, 
I think it's interesting that there are a number of places like seriously looking at doing that. A number of cities mm. in the States have already said they're going to start reducing um, the police budget. Um, and, you know, when I go out and I speak with young people and I, and I say to them, you know, I do a lot of work in the community and in, in, in neighborhoods that people don't like to go to. I'm like, you know, this society wants you to fail. They want you to drop out of school. They want you to get invested in crime because there are people who make money off of you failing. When you fail and you get invested in crime, the police are able to justify their job. They're able to justify why they need more money. The, the courts can say, well, we need more money. We've got all these black kids coming in. The probation offices, welfare, all of these kinds of things are dependent on you failing as a young black person, as a young brown person, as a young racialized poor person, it's necessary. It's how our society works. So if we can rid ourselves of that and actually empower these same people, we won't need the police as much as we depend on them today. There are many things that can be done in community that we don't need the police for. I've only recently discovered you, Dwayne. So I've, I've only uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, uh, watch the the past couple of videos that you've put up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, so some of your poetry. Um, so uh, forgive me if if if, the, if this question uh, should sh should be obvious or the answer to this question should be obvious. But um, has has your the stuff that you talk about in your poetry um, has has that changed recently? Are you focused more on uh, what we're going through as a society now, or um, have you always talked about these issues in your poetry, in your arts? Um, I've always talked about these issues, and, and I was doing an interview a couple of days ago, and I said, you know, it's really unfortunate that this is the 27th year of my career, and I have wow. 27 years worth of these poems. And, you know, wow. it's, I, I would love to not write any more of these poems, but something tells me I will probably write more of these poems. Mm. And it's so tiring to be writing about the same thing over and over again uh, and not seeing much change. And again, as I was saying at the beginning, uh, because of the role that I play in the community, when these things happen, you know, people have this expectation for me to find the words. So what I do is I just start writing the words that a lot of people are, are feeling and expressing and put them out. And a lot of people in the community really resonate to them. Um, and I really, you know, try to just be that, that, that voice and that um, someone who can kind of uh, articulate what a lot of people are, are feeling and, and may not be able to express. So um, it's really unfortunate that I'm still writing these same poems, but at the same time, you know, this is, this is what I do and this is the role that I play and I will keep doing it if necessary. What, last question, Dwayne. Mm -hmm. um, what, what should we be doing? And, and by we, I mean those who are not indigenous, those who are not black, um, those who don't experience on a daily basis uh, what the black and indigenous communities in Canada experience what what should we be what should we be doing on a daily basis to move the needle uh as quickly as possible um well i think the first thing is taking inventory of um 
your life, um, the circles that you're in, and really looking at, are these circles inclusive? Is there anyone who's not here? Is there anyone whose voice is more amplified than anyone else's voice? Start holding people accountable for the things that they say and the things that they do. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, we make certain jokes or we have that friend who's singing the song and saying the N-word like it's, it's you know, just there, you know, and, and that is a whole other conversation because, you know, I have so many conversations with people about the use of that word. Um, but I mean, I think it's, it's really looking at whatever circles that we are in, how can we make sure that these circles, these workplaces are as equitable as possible? And that really might mean dismantling a whole lot of the structure, really looking at Who's making the decisions here? Who's sitting in the boardrooms? Are there people of color who are, who are here? Do they have opportunities? Are people of color advancing you know, up, the, up the ranks in the same way that other people are? Um, and asking people of color their experience, because sometimes we suffer in silence, because who are we gonna talk to about these things? We wait till when we go home and then we offload to our friends about what has happened at work and people at work think everything is great there. Right. So it's really also being an ally in that if somebody is struggling with something and they might not know how to bring it up or what to do with it, you help them. Maybe you bring it up. Hmm. Maybe you say, hey, you know what? This is really what's happening in our workplace. And you might not know this because sometimes they're going to listen to you instead of listening to the other person who's actually experiencing it. So we really have to look at what power we have to shape what is happening in all of the circles that we find ourselves in. Dwayne, this has been, uh, this has been, has been very good for me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for, for your time. Um, thank you for your poetry. Um, and like you said, although we might uh, learn a lot from it, we're hoping that, that you don't always have to do it. But thank Absolutely. you again. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me.